The song we have just sung together captures in a beautiful and powerful way what it is that the coming of Christ demands of us. Uh, the second part of the first stanza of the song ends with these words, For with blessing is in his hand, Christ our God to earth descendeth, our full homage, our full worship uh, to demand. The reality is that this message, as, uh, as powerful as it is, is opposed. And as much as we like to think about the Christmas season as being a time in which the news about the coming of, of God's King would be a news that would be much welcomed, the reality is that this news um, often and most widely spread, it is not welcomed. So this morning, I want us to look at a passage of Scripture that speaks about the reality of the opposition to God's King, the opposition to God's King. Would you open God's Word to Psalm 2, the book of Psalms, chapter 2. I'll be reading the whole psalm. If you are with us for the first time, if you're visiting with us, uh, we are in a season in the life of our church when we are working through the book of 2 Samuel, and uh, we're taking a break from that. Because last week, we, we finished at chapter 7 of 2 Samuel, and uh, hopefully you will see that this week, today, and next week, the Psalms we are working through all have to do with the reality where chapter 7 of 2 Samuel left off. Psalm 2, 1 through 12. Why do the nations rage, and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against His anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage, and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron, and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear, and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the sun lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Amen. 
This is the word of the Lord. Would you join me in praying uh, for the preaching of this word and for the hearing of it? Let's pray and ask the Lord for help. Father, you are the God who revealed to us your Son, the one whom you sent to us to be king over us, to be king over all the nations. Father, we confess that the earth has not received your king with gladness. Father, we need your spirit to help us even hear this word. I, I ask that you would help me proclaim it, and I ask that you help us all to hear it so that Christ would be exalted in our hearts, so that his reign will be lifted up and visible in our lives, in this congregation, and to the ends of the earth. We pray all this, Father, in the name of our Savior, Jesus Christ, and to the presence and the power of your Holy Spirit. Amen. Why take a break from uh, 2 Samuel 7? Why jump into the Psalms? Because some of them are explicitly bringing up what we have covered in 2 Samuel 7 uh, over the last two Sundays, namely the covenant that God made with David, the Davidic covenant and uh, the promise God gave David to raise up offspring from his body to make them kings who would reign on his throne, to establish his throne forever, and to create a kingdom that will never, ever perish. It is this news that was declared in chapter 7 of 2 Samuel. And the question is, is this news received as good news throughout the earth? As good as that news was for David and for us to hear it, the question is, isn't good news, is the news of chapter 7 of 2 Samuel received as good news throughout the earth? And the answer that this psalm tells us is that it is not good news. Actually, the message of Psalm 2 can be boiled down to this summary, to this point. The news of God's King is not welcomed news, but a needed news. The news of God's King is not welcomed news, but a needed news. This message is sobering in the way it starts. But as we will see, as, as sobering as this message is in the way it starts, it will end on a tone of hope and invitation. Uh, the psalm has a very clear structure, four stanzas in the psalm. The first one tells a story of how the nations and their kings are opposing God and His King. That's in verses 1 to 3, the first stanza. Then in the middle two stanzas, verses 4 through 6, and then the, the, stanza, the third stanza, 7 through 9, those two stanzas belong together and they tell us why the opposition that we see is a foolish choice. It's a foolish choice. And finally, the last stanza, verses 10 through 12, uh, the, the psalm ends on an invitation to change. So, if I were to boil down the outline of the message, uh, there are four stanzas, but three points. 
because the middle two stanzas belong together. And the three points are this. Opposition to God's king is a reality. Opposition to God's king is a reality. Second, opposition to God's king is a folly. Opposition to God's king is a folly. Finally, opposition to God's king is still changeable. Opposition to God's king is still changeable. Let's jump into this psalm as we work our way through, through this message. The news of God's king is not welcomed, but a needed news. And we can do something about it today if you have not yet uh, changed your perspective about how you relate to this king. Opposition to God's king is, is a reality. And the psalm tells us it's actually a universal reality. Verses 1, 2, and 3. Uh, the, the, the psalm starts with describing the nations and their kings and their rulers uh, with a posture of opposition. Four verbs describe their opposition, the opposition of the nations. Do you see it? In the first two verses, they rage. They plot. They set themselves up. And they take counsel together. Against whom? Against, against the Lord. and Against His anointed. Now, the Hebrew word for plot, when they say they plot together or they plot against, the Hebrew word for plot is the same word as the word used in Psalm 1, verse 2, when it speaks about the one who delights in the law of the Lord and meditates on His word. The same word for meditating in chapter 1, in, in Psalm 1, is now used for plotting. In other words, people are divided up into parts. Some who meditate on the Lord and delight themselves with the Lord, and some who meditate on how to get rid of the Lord and push Him out of their lives. Try to live their lives in such a way in which they keep God at a distance. Now here, the, the word that they, who are they plotting against, against the Lord, we know that refers to, to God, but they also plot against His anointed, uh, the act of anointing. In the Old Testament, there were two offices who were anointed with, with a special ceremony of anointing. It was the king and the high priest. Uh, this in this psalm is referring to the anointing of, of the king, as we see in the rest of the psalm. Uh, but the word actually for the anointed, the Hebrew word, is a word we know well. It's the word Messiah. Uh, these nations, their kings, their rulers are plotting, are meditating how to get rid of God and His Messiah. But all, these, all this picture is introduced with the question, why? The psalm doesn't start with simply telling us that they do, but it's, they, the psalm starts with a question, why do they do so? Uh, this why is not a, an asking for information. It's more of a, of a why of surprise. Uh, and surprise at what? Surprise at the foolishness of these plans. Uh, the foolishness of these plans show up in the very uh, words, why do they plot in vain? 
I mean, the, the psalm tells us from the very beginning. Whatever the meditating is going on here, it's in vain. And the question the psalmist asks is why? Why would they do so? Oh, friends, the author wants us to know that whatever plans these kings, these nations have, whatever they think they can accomplish, and whatever level of confidence they have, thinking that they can get rid of God and of his king, it's not going to work. But this psalm is asking the question, why would they do that? And the psalm will actually help us understand why they're planning and their plotting is in vain. As the question is asked why, the psalmist wants us to hear their voice. The psalmist wants us to hear what they're saying while they're pushing God away. Look at verse 3. What are they saying? Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. They find God and his king to be oppressive. Uh, the NIV translates it as, let us burst their chains. It's not that the nations and their rulers are in chains by God and his king, but their impression is that they find God oppressive. Oh, friends, to see that pagan nations find God and, and the reign of, of his king oppressive, should not surprise us. Uh, we see that language increasing in our own culture, in our post-Christian culture today. When God has been pushed out of the, of the public square, it should not surprise us that the values and the truth of God are, fine, are found and considered today in an increasing way to be oppressive. And we will see more and more of this in our society how people view the values of, let's just say, gender, identity, sexuality, not to allow people to express themselves, even if it goes against how God created us, sounds oppressive. To tell people that they cannot kill babies in the womb sounds oppressive today. To tell people that there's a God who will judge them for, for what they will have done in their lives sounds oppressive today. Anything that puts boundaries on the choices of our self-expression seems to be oppressive today. When someone wants to exert authority over others, it is viewed as oppressive. The surprise of Psalm 2 is to hear that this tendency to find God and his king oppressive goes back as far back as the book of Psalms. We should not be surprised. We should not be surprised. Well, friends, how are we preparing ourselves? How are we raising up our children to know that they are being raised up in a culture, in a society? in which God is found oppressive. And his laws and his decrees are found as, or described as chains, fetters. But the word for, there are two words, uh, the word for bond, uh, for bonds, can also be translated as 
yoke. Uh, to be under someone's yoke uh, means that they are the master. To be under someone's yoke means that they own you, that you belong to them. And this is what the nations actually find oppressive and want to reject. The, the nations reject that God is their master. The nations reject the notion that we are owned by a creator who made us and by his king. Friends, this is the, the sin condition of not only the nations and their kings, but it's a sin condition of every human heart. We do not like to be told that we belong to someone else. That someone else has rights over us. It's not just that the nations and their kings or their rulers find God's ownership of us oppressive. Reality is that every human heart, in every human heart, the nature of our sinful condition is that we do not like for someone to tell us that we cannot do what we want to do. Just look at our young children. Why do we say when they hit around age two, why do we say that we're entering into the terrible twos season? Why? Because as they grow in strength and mobility, they discover they have freedoms and no boundary is a boundary for them. Why? Who put that instinct in them? It's part of our nature to despise any and every boundary. As we grow out of our terrible twos season, that sinful instinct of pushing every boundary and opposing anything and everyone who tells us that we cannot do what we want, that sinful instinct does not go away from us. It's camouflaged, but it does not go away from us. It stays in us. The very heart of sin is to find God and His King oppressive and to want to resist and to oppose the yoke that we are created by a God who is good and holy. Friends, Jesus is not afraid to speak to those who follow him and tell them about his yoke. Matthew eleven twenty nine to 30, Jesus invites his followers, take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I am gentle and lowly, in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. It's still a yoke, which means we are owned by the one whose yoke we carry. Friends, opposition to God and to Jesus as God's king is not new. Psalm 2 wants to bring us into this reality. 
Framing God and Christ as oppressive is sadly an old trick that should not shock us today. That is what people in opposition to God will think of God because they do not God, they do not want God or his king to rule their lives. But friends, it would be a miss a missed opportunity for us to read the psalm and think that this psalm is only referring to the people out there, to the unconverted, to the pagans, to the deeply secular and deeply whatever adjective you want to put on them, that this is speaking only or primarily about them. It is also speaking of every one of our hearts. It is speaking about the condition of every human being in our sinful nature. Verses 1, 2, and 3 describes all of us. Let me ask you, let me ask us this morning, are there truths of the Bible that you find to be leaning towards and describing them as unfair? Or I'm not sure I'm willing to live that out. Or simply plainly limiting your freedom as you read the Bible God's Word, are there parts of it that you struggle to embrace? Perhaps because you just don't like them. Or perhaps you just don't understand them. If so, come and talk to, to us. We would love to work with you. We'd love to, to work together through understanding what God decrees and wants of us. I'm so encouraged when I hear some of you come and Share how the Lord has convicted you about a particular issue or view you've had uh, that you used to hold, perhaps in a twisted way or in an incomplete way, and you had the wrong idea about it, or, or just plainly, you just did not like what God demanded of you, and therefore you rejected it. And the Lord convicted you of that, and you, you're, you're coming both to confess and to show and share the, the freedom you have now to embrace God and His reign over us because his yoke actually brings us rest. Oh, friends, perhaps it's commands like gathering regularly with God's people for worship. Perhaps for some of you that seems to be a yoke that's just too heavy or unwilling to take on, and you want to push it aside. Uh, perhaps for others it may be the expectation that those who belong to God should be members of local churches committed to other believers, committed to Christ, accountable to each other. Perhaps, perhaps the notion of membership may seem like a, a weird yoke that you don't want to put on you. Friends, perhaps just even the notion of repenting of your sins and submitting your life to Lord Jesus may sound like a yoke too heavy and unsure that you want to take on you and you want to push away, push aside. I want to speak to our, our children and our youth. Uh, as some of our youth, as some of you may be moving away for college, you will find freedoms when you move away that you may have not thought of before while you were under the roof of your parents. The question will be asked, will you still follow the, the one that you have heard about being taught every Sunday in your homes by your parents the reality is that in our hearts, all of us struggle with that instinct to oppose God and His ways. Or people, maybe, here's another way that people oppose God and His ways. Uh, people may be willing to embrace a view of God, but not the view of the God of the Bible. 
They are not willing to embrace a God who says, Be holy as I am holy. They are willing to embrace a God of only love, only acceptance. But they cannot embrace the God who says, My only way, the only way of being saved is through my son Jesus. Friends, even religious and spiritual people are included among those who oppose God when they oppose the God of the Bible and replace him with a God of their own making. Or they just choose some parts of the Bible and leave others out. Friends, Psalm 2 is medicine, not only for the nations out there, but for all of us. Because all of us continue to have in our inner beings that instinct that wants to oppose God. So this question, or the psalm, starts with the question, why? Why would the nations oppose? Why would you and I feel like it's a good idea, that's a good deal to oppose God and his king? Whether you do it explicitly and in full light or whether you do it secretly. When no one sees you and you live that double life, that hidden life, it doesn't matter how you do it. The reality is why would you do it? And this psalm will try to expose the foolishness, why this plotting is in vain. So the next two stanzas, verses 4 all the way to verse 9, next two stanzas, Tell us why opposition to God's king is a folly. It's a reality. That's verses 1, 2, and 3. Now we see why is it a folly. And uh, just as verses 1, 2, and 3 includes or starts with four verbs describing the world's opposition, verses 4 through 6 contain four verbs describing God's response to the nations and to their kings. And you could put these two stanzas, the first one and the second one, parallel to each other, and they parallel exactly. Four verbs followed by a little short dialogue. Uh, how, how is God responding to the opposition of the nations against him and his king? And the first response is, he laughs. He laughs. Look at verse 4. He who sits in the heavens laughs. Why would he laugh? And what message is he communicating through his laugh? Well, it, he communicates that he's not intimidated by their opposition. He's not overwhelmed by their opposition. He's not scratching his head to find a solution how to solve this new world crisis. This laugh is not a light-hearted laugh. It's not the laugh of a good joke. It's not a laugh as if God is not taking seriously their opposition. It's a, it's a laugh that their opposition is not changing or affecting God in his plans to put a king over the earth. It's a laugh that no matter what they do, God is able to continue to carry on his plans. The laughter of God is not the only response he gives. 
This laughter is mixed with other responses, such as holding them in derision, speaking to them in his wrath, and delivering to them an important news that terrifies them. In the second stanza, verses 4 to 6, um, we see the verbs that describe God's response closing off with his speech to them. Look at verse 6. As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. This news, as God says it to them, terrifies these rulers. Why? Because their plans to rule the world is actually challenged by the God who does rule the earth. For them to hear that the one God who is enthroned in heaven, the king of heaven, has chosen a king to reign on the earth means that he's messing with their plans and wishes. Their plotting is not working out. They're planning to, to reign over the earth. And God says, too late. The job is taken. I have set my king. I have put my king on Zion. I got a king on earth. And it's not you. This is terrifying news for those who want to rule their lives and their nations. Let's be honest. Do you welcome the news that God has already determined who should rule your life? If, if, you're, if you're saying yes, praise God to that. But I want you not just to give a quick answer now. I want you to meditate on this question. Do you welcome the news that God has already determined who should rule your life? And it's not you. To welcome the news that God has set an authority over you to whom you will be an accountable, to whom you will be accountable. One day we will stand before his throne and we will give an account for every deed, for every word, for every thought. Oh, friends, the news today about the coming of King Jesus is spoken and announced, especially in a season like this, with great joy, offering peace, offering comfort. And that is true. But this psalm is speaking about a future time. A time will come when these words will be spoken not with joy and not with peace, but they will be spoken with divine wrath. On that day, it will be too late to change allegiances. How sober of us to hear that a day will come when God will speak these words about His coming King having already been set on the earth. And though that news will be spoken by God, not with gentleness, not with an open hand of invitation to come, but with wrath. It's too late. I've set my king. And for those who will continue to be opposed to God and to his king, when that day comes, it will be too late. If the people of the earth continue to remain in opposition to God, if you, my friend, Continue to remain in opposition to God and to His King forever. The last words you will hear from God 
about his king will be words in wrath. Why is opposing God and his king such a bad idea? Not only because God tells us that he has filled up the job with his appointed king, but we also get to hear about what God promised his king. Well, the king of heaven promised the one who he appointed to be king on earth. We get a little bit of, a, of an inside hearing, a window into the decree that the God of heaven has spoken to the, to the king on earth. And we get that decree, that dialogue in verses 7 through 9. And these words unfold for us why God is able to say and speak in wrath that he has set his king. Here's why. Verses 7 through 9 give us a decree of what God has spoken now, not to the rulers, but to his king. He made several promises. The first one is that there's a father-son relationship. Look at verse 7. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Now, to the human kings in the line of David, as we have, as we have seen and heard from 2 Samuel chapter 7, to the human kings in the line of David, God promised that he will be their father and they will be his son. This psalm, Psalm 2, was, was recited at the coronation, at the installation service of the Davidic kings. It was as a way of saying that God is, is adopting the, the human kings coming out of the body of David who had been installed as kings over Israel. This was a covenant God made with David in 2 Samuel 7. So there's an initial degree of application that this psalm had for the coronation, for the installation of the, of the kings that came out of the Davidic dynasty. But these verses are also a window into what God the Father had spoken from the very beginning of time to his eternal son. Hebrews chapter 1, the passage that our brother Brett read earlier in the service, speaks about how Jesus is superior even to angels. And the author brings a number of Old Testament quotations to prove that Jesus is superior even to angels. And one of the verses is this one from Psalm 2. The author of Hebrews brings proof that the psalmist in Psalm 2 are the words of God spoken to Jesus. Not just to David, but to Jesus. For to which of the angels did God ever say, You are my son, today I have begotten you. And the author of Hebrews says, To Jesus. This means Psalm 2-7 was actually a decree that God made, not only to the Davidic kings that came out of the body of David, but to the ultimate Davidic king, King Jesus. There's a father-son relationship. Then there's, a, there's something else in this decree that the Father, the, 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 throne, the one who's enthroned in heaven, declares the king on earth. There's going to be a much wider heritage and possession. 
What God promised his anointed king is not merely that he will rule and reign over the promised land of Israel, but that the whole earth is given to him as his possession. That all the nations are given to him as the inheritance. Look at verse 8. Ask of me, God says to his king, ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. Oh, friends, the promise God made to this king is more than the inheritance of one nation or one small piece of land. God will give all the nations and all the earth to this king. God will grant him the earth as his possession. Because God owns the nations, because God made the nations, he can give them to his son as an inheritance gift. Because God made the earth, the whole earth, he can give it. He has the right to give it to his son to possess it. Friends, that's why we're excited to support international missions. To send people to the various nations of the earth and to speak about the name of Jesus who has authority to own them. Who has authority to demand their allegiance. But before that day will come when God will speak about his king in wrath, there's still the day of speaking about this king and inviting the nations to come to him. So that's why we are excited to support missionaries like Ruth and Michael and others, Jonathan and Ruth and, and Titus, missionaries who are serving with the IMB, missionaries who are serving with Reaching and Teaching, missionaries who are serving with Radius International. We want to give to support to the work of missions because we know that God has given the nations as an inheritance to his son. It's just a matter of time until all this will be folded up. But until that time, we make this news known. So even if we're not goers, we can be givers. Even if we're not goers, we can pray. Even if we're not goers ourselves, we can call them. We can reach out to them so they know that their ministry is our ministry. They're just the tip of the spear. So think of the way you spend this Christmas. Think of the way you spend this Christmas. Give generously. Give intentionally. Reach out. Pray that what God promised to give His Son will unfold. This mission will not fail. And then the final promise given between the Father and the Son is that there's going to be final victory overall. Look at verse 9. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Wow, that's a way to do evangelism. It's not a, it's a sober picture. It's not, a, it's not a, an inviting picture. The invitation only makes sense if you can say, there's still time to change. Otherwise, it's a dreadful picture. It's not cozy. Yet God promises this king victory over all those who will continue to oppose him. In other words, the father says to his son, to the king, 
that his reign will conquer every rebel power. The picture used here is a picture to contrast the power of Christ against all opposition in contrast with pottery, earthen vessels. Is there a chance that a rod of iron coming in contact with pottery, is there any chance that somehow the pottery will win? That somehow the pottery will make it through alive and intact? No. When someone takes a rod of iron and dashes it into pottery, there's just no chance the pottery will stand standing and intact. And that's the picture God gives to his king. Say, your, room, your reign will have that kind of an impact on all those who will remain in opposition to your king. Friends, do you understand why the plotting against these two, the against God and his king, is in vain? Why it's folly? Because at the end of the age, it will stand no chance for any plotting against them to remain standing. Friends, on that day, you do not want to be the pottery. On that day, you do not want to be the pottery. Listen to the promise King Jesus makes to all those who will be conquerors in persevering with Jesus to the end. Listen to this picture from Revelation chapter 2, 26 and 27. The, the picture of the resurrected and exalted Jesus speaking to the churches. He says, the one who conquers, speaking about his followers, the one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations and he will rule them with a rod of iron as when earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself have received authority from my Father. In other, in other words, Jesus says, listen, I'm going to share the authority that God the Father has given to me to dash the earthen pottery. I'm going to share that authority with all those who follow me. You don't want to be pottery on that day. You want to be the one holding the rod of iron. The middle of the two stanzas of this psalm have shown us reasons why opposing God and his king are folly. Because our opposition does not intimidate God at all. He laughs. But our opposition stands no chance against the king that God installed over the earth. So, how can we relate to this king and his son? who has received the authority over the nations, who has received the earth as his possession, and a day will come when that inheritance will be fully given over to him. Until that day comes, there's still chance, there's still time to change sides. And that's how this psalm ends. This psalm ends on a sober picture. I mean, it starts on a sober, sober picture and ends on an invitation. 
Opposition to God's king is a reality, a universal reality. Opposition to God's king is folly, sheer folly. Finally, opposition to God's king is still changeable. And the last few verses of the psalm holds out truly great news for all of us. There's still time to change, to treat God and his king wisely. Be wise is the first command of the conclusion of the psalm. Verse 10, now therefore, O kings, be wise. The psalm holds out hope for all of us who hear this message today, calls us to wisdom, the wisdom to change allegiances. There's still time. If you have been opposing him, if in your own heart you have found yourself constantly being drawn to opposing him, there's time to just continue to return to this king. And then there's a warning, be warned, verse 10, be warned, O rulers of the earth. For those who are still on the fences, for those who are not sure whether this choice is wise to make, whether there's good reasons to join this king and his God, be warned. What happens if one does not change allegiances? Verse 12, verse 12, lest he be angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath is quickly kindled. Don't say to yourself, I got time. Don't delay. His wrath can be quick kindled quickly. There's no place to escape from him forever. There's no place to run from this king. But here's the good news. You can run to him. You can run to him, and that will make all the difference. What does that mean, to run to him? Well, run to serve him. Change allegiances. The, 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 the next verse here is, serve the Lord. <laughs> Change masters. If you've been serving yourself, if you've been serving other idols and other gods, Serve the Lord. Change your master. And then run to him, not only by changing the master, run to him by rejoicing. Rejoice in him. And then kiss him. Serve him. Rejoice in him. Kiss him. That's what it means to take refuge in him, to run to him. I love how one pastor put it beautifully, there's no refuge from the king, only refuge in the king. What does it mean to find refuge in this king? Change your master. Find joy in him. This world will give you many reasons to tremble and to fear. Circumstances in your life may give you many reasons to be anxious. But in the midst of all those fears, anxiety, reasons to tremble, rejoice in him. He's your master. He's your king. He rules. He reigns. 
even though his reign and his kingdom right now, you do not see it fully or completely. Our lives are not characterized by just the trembling or the fear or the anxiety. Our lives ought to be characterized by serving him, by rejoicing in him, and by kissing him. You say, what, what, what does that mean? Let your affections, let your allegiances be publicly displayed as you set your gaze on Jesus. There's no secrecy with him. There's no public shame about changing sides, about casting our hopes on King Jesus. Serve him, rejoice in him, and kiss him. Show your affections for him. Don't just hold it in as a secret agent. You're just doing your stuff on your own. No, go public. If you, are not, if you have not yet gone public with your faith, get baptized. Join a local congregation. Make your following of Jesus public. Let all of them know. Let everyone know that you are in love with a king God has set over the earth. This is what it means to find your refuge in this king, the king that God installed on the earth. The psalm ends with a blessing. Blessed are all those who take refuge in him. Friends, those who take refuge in this king are not foolish, even though the world will tell you that it is foolish. Those who take refuge in this king are blessed. Is it a surprise that the early Christians found Psalm 2 to be a place where they have found the incarnation of Jesus, where they have found the crucifixion of Jesus, where they have found the resurrection of Jesus, and where they have found the promise of victory with Jesus worth persevering for. Psalm 2 is quoted in Hebrews 1, in Acts 4, Acts 13, Revelation 2, and these are just some of the places where the psalm is quoted. It is no surprise that this psalm is put at the beginning of the Psalter. Because the psal those who put the psalms together and put it in this order, this psalm is written late in David's life. This psalm is written after Psalm 23, if we were to think about it. But it's put here at the beginning of the Psalter to let us know that true wisdom, true communion with God starts when you recognize the king that God has set over the earth. He has filled that job with somebody else, and it's not you. It's his son, King Jesus. Let's pray. Father, help us to see the wisdom of embracing, of receiving, of setting our affections on the king you have installed on the earth. Help us to see that anything else would be folly, that would be foolishness, that it would be investing in the, in the things that will perish and, and fall away. 
Father, help us to embrace the king you have sent us so that we might be wise, so that we might be blessed. In the name of Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen.